The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So, most of you know we've been looking at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, for a while now, almost a year. We're on chapter 32, which is a chapter in the Four Noble Truths. And he begins this chapter with a lament. I think you could call it a teacher's lament, where he shares about how it's not easy for him. So, let me read that to get us started tonight. So, if you don't know, Ajahn Chah was a very well-known Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, died in the early 90s. So, Ajahn Chah says, Having been a teacher for many years now, I've been through my share of difficulties. At present, there are altogether about 40 branch monasteries. But even these days, I have followers who are hard to teach. Some know how to practice, but don't bother. Some don't know how, and don't try to find out. I don't know what to do with them. Why do human beings have minds like this? Being ignorant is not so good. But even if I tell them, they don't listen. I don't know what more I can do. People are so full of doubts in their practice. They're always doubting. They all want to go to Nibbana, right, the cessation of suffering, but they don't want to walk the path. It's baffling. When I tell them to meditate, they're afraid, or if not afraid, then just plain sleepy. Mostly they like to do the things I don't teach. When I have spoken with other teachers of the Dhamma, they have told me that their followers are just the same. This is the pain of being a teacher. <laughs> so, one of my responses is, oh, guys, <laughs> I have a sense, you know, Ajahn Chah was somebody who um, had a lot of space in his mind and heart, and probably, although maybe he would have preferred his students to be better than they were, probably didn't create suffering out of the experience. That's my guess. So anyway, it, I like that beginning because it sort of begs this question for all of us, and we can reflect on it right now. It seems in my life, and I'm guessing for all of us, that we have some sense of what's skillful and not skillful. I mean, it's like we may eat too much for dinner, but we know, if we look, we know it isn't good to eat too much. Or it isn't good to take things that aren't ours. We may take things that aren't ours, but we know that it's not good. Or, you know, there are so many ways that, like, we know that, like, when we get angry and then we start to indulge in our anger, we just let it spin in the mind. We know that that's not helpful. Like, it's not doing us any good or anybody else any good. And the same thing with the wholesome things. Like, eating our vegetables, or, you know, getting enough sleep, or not sleeping too much, or getting some exercise, or taking turns. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned driving back on, a, I think, a Wednesday, and uh, at 3 o'clock there was a long line of cars on 394 wanting to get on 94 East. seems like that shouldn't have been that way in the middle of the afternoon, but it was that way. And then, of course, so many cars not getting in line, but waiting to the very last moment, 
and then sneaking in, which of course just makes the line longer and longer. You know, so whether you're the one in line or the one sneaking in line, we tend to know what's right and wrong, what's skillful and unskillful. And then the question, like if that's true for you, that you have some intuition, some regular intuition about what's wholesome and unwholesome, what leads to stress, what doesn't lead to stress in your lives. And the interesting question is, why haven't we, you know, really taken a, taken that up? Like what we know, why haven't we built our life around that? I mean, I give the example of exercise. I know what helps. Like I've had problems with sciatica over the years. I know if I do my stretches every day, I don't really have any pain. And if I don't do my stretches, I have pain. And it's just amazing how it seems appropriate not to do my stretches so much of the time. <laughs> and in so many little and big ways, you know, this is how we live. So why is that? What are we missing? You know, why don't we follow through with what we have come to understand? in our lives. Somehow I think that, for me, for all of us maybe, that there's some sense that taking care of ourselves in this deeper way, in this more honest, this way that I think has a lot of integrity, you know, where we're, in a sense, we're listening from what we've learned in life, and then we're willing to follow in alignment with what we've learned. That somehow we think that that's incompatible with being a happy person, right? That being good isn't fun. Or being good doesn't lead to happiness. It leads to being good, but not to happiness. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I don't think we necessarily believe that intellectually, but it seems to be the operating principle. It's like, we like what's not good, even though it's not good, or not, or you know, it's bad, but we're drawn to it. And this is, you know, you see this a lot in different spiritual traditions, some kind of sense that you can't trust life. So in a lot of different spiritual traditions, there's a real sense of transcendence. I think ascetic practices come out of this idea and spirituality that the world's a mess and we got to get out of it in order to be free. And this, there's that sense in Buddhism too. I don't think Buddhism is immune to it. But I think this is so almost always misunderstood, this rejection of the world, because, you know, we want it too much. We want the pleasure. We want control of it. But see, it isn't the world that's the problem. It's how the mind relates or understands the world. So this is really not that different than what I was saying at the beginning about dana, about freely giving and receiving, as opposed to relating to the world strategically from a self point of view, like what can I get, what can I hold on to, what, what can I get rid of. So we need to use our imagination, you know, from the teachings, from our life experiences, we need to use our imagination and we need to imagine a life for ourselves, a way of living, a way of being in our actual circumstances, not something idealistic or utopian, but 
We have to imagine a way of being that is wholesome and satisfactory and fulfilling and enlivening and beautiful. Because that's what we want. We're going to do that anyway. You know, we're going to gravitate toward the beauty, the good, the juicy anyway. So we have to reflect deeply like, is there a way to be good and alive? Because it seems like I can be spiritual and dry and, you know, disconnected and frightened by the world because it might tempt me into doing something bad. Or, you know, so we can do that. That's the spiritual person, the sort of stereotypic, dried-up, uh, you know, person that we would never want to be, but somehow we respect, <laughs> revere even, but, you know, we would never want to do that for ourselves. Or we can be the lush, you know, the person who just, you know, gets pushed around by life a lot, gets pushed around their desires, keeps falling into the same holes over and over again because the person doesn't, you know, doesn't have any self-discipline, any self-control. It seems like that's our two options. And I think this is really a failure of imagination. And to, to see that, like to imagine a spiritual life or to imagine, don't even use the word spiritual, to imagine a life that has integrity. Integrity, by integrity, we mean that we're not building our comfort, our happiness on the backs of other living beings. Well, that's, that's an interesting, like, how to do that. But just, that's why we use our imagination. And it's not like, uh, it's like moving in that direction. How do we imagine, how do we build or create a life that's not the happiness, the satisfaction, the comfort, isn't dependent on other beings suffering? And how do we build a life that that uh, involves a deepening understanding, a deepening freedom? It's like... Uh, what we understand today, we didn't understand yesterday or two weeks ago or two years ago. And as the understanding, what the understanding we're talking about is in particular the understanding like how not to suffer in the different conditions that arise in my life. So, you know, like when we were teens, there were a lot of places we suffered, but now when those situations arise for us, we don't suffer anymore. So we've learned how not to get tight or contracted in some places in our lives because we've learned how to hold that space, that situation. Maybe we don't take it as personally, or maybe we just understand that it can't be other than what it is, but we don't suffer like we may be used to. So wouldn't it be nice to build a life, to imagine a life that there is this deepening? So every day, every week, at least every year, looking back, we could see, see or say, oh, there are all these places now that I can, that can arise in my life, and instead of being something that makes me contract, I actually feel quite enlivened by it. And you know how that is? It's like, uh, with a lot of learning, 
initially we were overly tight and fearful, like of making a mistake or being judged, seen as a fool. But then when we get a certain amount of competence, we actually like engaging that situation because human beings like learning. You know, we like becoming competent. And then after a while, it's not a challenge. It's just a place that we have natural competence. And in those situations, it's really nice to be a mentor for other people who aren't yet competent in that particular area. There's a certain joy in just like showing people the ropes. Like, how do you, this is how I handle it. You know, this is, these are the mistakes I've made. And this is what I've learned from those mistakes. Maybe that's helpful for you too. And so, you know, we want to imagine that kind of life for ourselves. A life that has integrity, the happiness we find in life isn't built upon the backs of other living beings, causing them suffering. Living a life, imagining a life where every day, every week, there's more freedom in more corners, more situations of our lives. And so wherever there isn't freedom, like a particular relationship at work that we always end up getting contracted around. Where then we're just looking at that day by day, week by week, month by month. How might it be possible? How can we imagine this relationship transforming? So instead of a place in my life that has a lot of weight or a lot of anger, it's like becomes an alivening place where I'm learning how to be with this person. And it's challenging. But it's enlivening the success, the possibility of taking care of myself without sort of dismissing this person or throwing them out of my heart, but also not letting them walk all over me. So finding that beautiful, enlivening dynamic where I'm taking care of myself without having to destroy this other person, understanding where they're coming from, not sort of idealistically assuming that they're skillful when they're not skillful, but really seeing clearly the way it is, seeing their suffering, seeing their skill, and learning how to coexist with this person. That that feels so good to do that. And to have a sense that life is this way, that this is how our life is. It's this place where freedom is expanding. And the thing that happens when we imagine that kind of life, live that kind of life, then even in all the places where we don't have that freedom, we have a sense that it's just a matter of time. It's like we just haven't understood the situation clearly enough. We haven't unearthed all the ways that my mind is misperceiving or misunderstanding this dynamic I have in this particular situation in my life. Like around aging, you know, maybe that's the one place for you where there's a lot of tightness, or about your body image, or about a particular relationship that you don't think this person is really living up to their end of the bargain in your partnership or something like that, or your kids don't love you, or your job is, you know, whatever. And instead of just imagining, I just have to live with that, doesn't mean you have to change it. What, what's transforming, the only thing we're asking to be transformed is the experience of being weighed down by it to the experience of being enlivened by it. doesn't mean the person's going to transform and become a sweet person 
or the job's going to transform, or the world's going to transform, and global warming's going to go away, and politics, all of a sudden there will be no money in politics. God will, you know, put down all this money so politicians don't have to grovel to corporate interests in order to raise money for their elections, and everything will be perfect. So it's not that. It's like how to be free with the world that we actually inhabit. How to more and more, day by day, be free with all the imperfections, limitations of our world. And this is really the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. You know, we can highlight the limitations of our life and then build a story about how limited our life is, or we can notice the limitations of our body, our mind, our circumstances, and we can be enlivened by the possibility of being free with this body, this mind, these circumstances. And it's really a matter, initially a matter of stories. It's like the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, it's a story too. It's a story that says that it's possible to be free. You know, the the center of the story of the Dharma is the Buddha. You know, there's this historic person or this mythological, legendary person. There is this, but the idea of this person is he is a person like we are and a symbol of, like, it's possible as a human being to be alive and awake, free, compassionate, unburdened by what comes and goes in life. And the thing is, it actually doesn't matter right now whether that's true or not. What matters is, is that skillful, right? As we look or turn to our own life, what's more skillful for us? To notice the limitations of our body, our mind, and our circumstances and tell ourselves a story that, oh, it's too bad that my life, my body, my mind is so limited. I wish it weren't this way. Other people seem to have more than me in this regard or that regard. Or is it more skillful, more useful to notice the limitations? Because we will notice limitations. I think anybody, unless you're really good at distraction, you're going to notice the limitations of life. Because... They're there. I mean, that doesn't mean that all of life is limited or bad or unpleasant. Clearly, that's not the case. But there are limitations. Life isn't completely under our control. You know, that, you know how much we, some of us, grew up with, I dream of Jeannie. Jeannie, who could just give anything her master wanted. And that idea, you know, that we could have whatever we want in life. But, that's so clearly not the case, and we're so disappointed that's not the case. And I have proof. The reason I know that that's true is, <coughs> isn't it amazing how much money gets spent on the lottery? I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in the lottery, but it's just interesting because I think it's really that whole genie thing. It's like, I have all this money, and it will be so much fun to do whatever I want to do if I had all this money. And my problems, I mean, not that we actually think this out clearly, but there's some unconscious sense that it's going to be great. 
like having a genie that would give us whatever we wanted. It's actually a, a meditation story involving a genie that goes bad. And the genie says to this person, you know, I'm gonna, I'll do whatever you want, but if you run out of things to tell me to do, I'm gonna eat you up. And the person agrees to have the genie anyway. And, uh, of course, it isn't that long before he or she begins running out of things to tell the genie to do. And, uh, the person runs back to this great seer, you know, in the cave on the side of the mountain, asking for advice because the genie's about to eat him up. And the great seer says to this fool, well, tell the genie to get the biggest tree in the land, put it in the middle of a big empty field, remove all the branches, so it's just one big post in the middle of a big empty field, and to start running up and down it. So just in the nick of time, he turns and tells the genie what to do, and the genie does it, gets the biggest tree, takes the branches up, sticks it right in the middle of the big field, and with great vigor starts to run up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, for weeks and months and years. And then after a very long time, the genie just sort of quickly goes over to where the guy is and says, you know, how about I just lean, sit down and lean against that pole? And if you ever have anything for me to do, you just ask. And if you don't have anything for me to do, I'll just be there resting, <laughs> waiting for you. And you can probably see how it's a story about taming the mind, you know, the mind, the crazy mind that's trying to get something meaningful from life instead of trying to be free with the conditions of life. And this is what the basic teaching of the Buddha is all about. We can use life to try to find happiness, or we can use life to be free with life, with the conditions of our life. Using life to try to be happy, to get, to, you know, put together that perfect life is endlessly frustrating. And the frustration that we experience neurotically compels us to try harder to find happiness through the different experiences in life. Because we feel so dissatisfied from having been frustrated because we haven't achieved perfect happiness, we try harder to get what we think will lead to perfect happiness. And we're constantly burnt, and that burning drives us on. We get burnt, and it drives us on. So what the Buddha is saying, that's hopeless. Do what you can. There's nothing wrong with turning the heat up when we're cold, turning the AC on when we're warm, going to sleep when we're tired, feeding the body when we're hungry, hanging out with other people when we're lonely, being alone when we're needing a break from social activity. There's nothing wrong with all these moves in life, taking care of ourselves. But none of that will lead to happiness. It's just all that action, all that activity is doing is managing a basic level of comfort, which is always unstable, and always needs constant uh, little push there, a little retreat here, right? We're constantly managing our comfort. Even sitting here, right? We're managing our comfort. We're constantly managing the comfort of our mind. We start thinking about a thought that's really agitating, you know, and then we bring in some rationalization. 
or we put out the fire in this way, or we justify it in that. We're always managing our stress level, thinking that somehow, by constantly tweaking it and adding and subtracting, that we'll get to the place with no stress. But it doesn't, managing our stress level doesn't lead to a place with no stress. In fact, having to manage our stress level is itself stressful. And doesn't lead to a situation where there is no stress. Because any, any scientist that has studied this will tell you that the whole mechanism of life involves stress. You know, like the body, the sensitivity of the body and mind is basically designed through evolution to respond to stress. It's like that's what we read. We read stress and respond to it. So there will always be stress. So you see how absurd it is, how tragic actually, that from a spiritual point of view or an existential point of view, we're seeking happiness through the managing of stress that never ceases. Stress doesn't cease. What ceases is the neurotic, what can cease through practice is our neurotic reactivity to stress. So a radical change of view or change of relationship to the ordinary discomforts of life. In other words, being free with the conditions of the moment instead of strategically trying to manage the conditions of the moment. Now we don't have to even ultimately stop managing the conditions of the moment, but to some degree it's useful to have a lighter touch. So like when you go and you sit, do your formal meditation at home, or you come to the center and you do a sit, you know, for that 30 minutes or that 45 minutes, we sit in some way, in a relaxed way. And in a way, we're consciously attempting to not do too much managing of the pleasure and unpleasantness that comes. In other words, we just let things happen for a while. You know, we let the sensations of the body happen and the sounds in the room happen and we let the thoughts happen because we're practicing more specifically being free with what's happening as opposed to managing what's happening. And this really arises out of the Four Noble Truths, the basic teaching the Buddha gave over and over again. There is stress in life. That's the first noble truth. This is an insight, like to just get what I mentioned a few moments ago, that there is just always going to be stress. Even when things are really great, really pleasant, there's still stress because part of the mind is managing how to keep it this nice for as long as possible and constantly alert to whatever's out there that might change this nice situation I've got going. Right? So even in the really nice moments of our life, if we notice, if we're attentive, we'll notice it's stressful. There, there is never a moment in life where there isn't stress. So the first noble truth is this very honest, clear, balanced acknowledgement. There is stress in life. It's just the truth. It's not a negative judgment of life. It's just an honest acknowledgement. That's how it is. And then, the second noble truth is, as we get more and more alert, attentive to the stress, we see that there is this possibility 
for a, a radical turning because <clears throat> stress becomes a problem only when there's attachment or the mind takes the stress personally. We take the cool temperature, which we don't like, personally. We take the hot temperature, which we don't like, personally. We take the sweet taste of ice cream, personally. And then it's a personal problem, because there's not enough. Because our partner is eating more than her share. Or <laughs> we're afraid that when she gets up in the middle of the night, that it's going to be gone. You know? I mean, these... These are important things. <laughs> or, <clears throat> you know, on a national level, you know, all the, all the illegal immigrants are going to take our national wealth. They're going to sort of, that's, that's that same fear that can uh, rise in our minds. Or, you know, any number of fears that we have not being enough for us. So, when we're sitting, you know, all these thoughts can come, sensations can come, but no matter what arises, at least this is the practice, and we're not always that good at it, but this is the aspiration that no matter what arises in the body and the mind, we're going to practice being free with it. And the way that freedom is expressed, we just allow whatever that thought is, whatever that sensation is, whatever that sound is, we just allow it to express its nature, which is, it comes and it goes. And then, in a sense, we're, we're practicing being the space, the empty space of love or the empty space of wisdom, this quality of mind that is knowing how it is, but is doing nothing else. It's just the knowing. We're just knowing it's like this. We know that there is this experience of being too hot or too cold or really liking the peace in my meditation. We know that pleasantness or that unpleasantness but we're not adding or subtracting to it. We're just letting that pleasant or unpleasant experience come and then express its nature. Everything comes and then goes. And that's how we practice being free with experience. Or that's how we act, realize the second noble truth that it's only when there's attachment that stress becomes a personal problem. Pain isn't a problem until it's taken personally. This is just a good meditation, contemplation question to have in your mind. What is the experience, like physical pain is relatively easy to work with, but it's the same thing with mental, emotional pain. What is the experience of pain when the mind is seeing it as nature, not taking it personally? So probably everyone here now has some even if it's subtle, some physical discomfort in the body. And we can open, turn the attention to the physical discomfort. And initially, just because of the momentum of our habits, we're going to take it personally. But that's an option. We can actually practice being free with those unpleasant sensations now in the body by not adding this piece of taking the pain personally. We don't have to take it personally. It can just be the throbbing or the stinging or the burning or the twisting or the heaviness or the aching or, you know, whatever that is. And then we'll notice how it becomes personal and then it's personally a problem. Dukkha, suffering is there. And then in the next moment, maybe 
it drops away, and it's just sensation being known, intense sensations perhaps, but it's just sensation being known, or just emotion being known, or just thought being known, and then it's personal, and then it's nature, and then, and we go back and forth learning this lesson over and over and over again when we, when the mind takes, gets identified or attached, takes things personally, then stress is a personal problem. When the mind isn't taking it personally, then there's no personal problem. There's freedom. And every time the mind sees that and it goes out the other end, you know, where we're just sitting there, like in our formal meditation practice. Of course, you can do this any moment of your life, but in a sit, you're there, there's some knee pain or something like that, or back pain. And instead of trying to manage it, or be strategic, or deny it, or get distracted so you don't have to feel it, you're just sitting right in the middle of that physical pain in your back. You're there, you're interested, and, <clears throat> and the initial insight is there is this stress, or there is this discomfort, and it's like this now. Can this be okay? And then as you get some stability, some evenness of mind with that pain, that ordinary pain in the back, then you'll see this back and forth happening. When the mind is taking the pain personally, there is right here and now, in my experience, a personal problem. I don't like this pain. I feel personally oppressed, weighed down, burdened by this pain. I feel personally compelled to destroy it, to get rid of it to figure out why it's happening to me, who did this to me, how can I get rid of it, right? So we feel compelled to proliferate around it, and of course all of those ways we proliferate around it are also stressful. So there's the basic discomfort of the pain, there's the tension involved in taking it personally, and then there's the tension or stress involved in thinking about it in these stressful ways. And if we see that and we begin to notice that correlation that it, it hurts, it's suffering whenever we take it personally, and it's just ordinary sensation when we don't take it personally. We notice that moment of cessation, the personal problem ceases in the mind. And this is something we have to, this insight we need to have thousands and thousands of times. This is what transforms our life. In daily life and in formal meditation practice, we have to see that moment of cessation that between the second and the third noble truth. We study enough with the first noble truth that there is discomfort, there is stress, until we see the play between when there's attachment, it's a problem. When there's no attachment, it's not a problem. If we see that enough, then attachment will drop away. And in that moment, immediately in that moment when attachment drops away, the mind or the heart experiences no problem. And that's an existential no problem. That's like a capital N, capital P, no problem. It's a mystical experience, really. Because there you are, you're an ordinary human being with a body and mind, but there's a sense right then and there that not only is this moment okay, but actually the mind, from that insight, it generalizes it and it understands it's always been okay. Even when I was suffering, it was actually just the appearance of suffering. And as I imagine all the problems that could be out there in the future, they're not actually a problem. That's, that's the third insight. When the mind realizes no problem, 
it generalizes and it understands that even though I might get fooled, I deeply understand that it's really okay. Having a body and a mind, experience discomfort, experiencing the ordinary limitations of life like the pain of loss of loved ones, the loss of our own life, all of these inevitable things that come with life, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. These are the eight worldly winds that the Buddha talked about. That There's no way to go beyond that, but they're fundamentally not a problem. Now, that's a shocking, provocative thing to hear. But I bet all of us maybe have, maybe faint, but have some intuitive sense, some at least interest in that possibility. Is that really true? And the Buddha might say something, well, check it out. Check out if it's true. Follow this particular teaching. Get steady with stress until you see the correlation that when stress is taken personally, it's a personal problem. When it doesn't, when the mind isn't taking it personally, cessation occurs. Then understand, realize deeply that experience of cessation until the mind generalizes it out and sees, basically begins to intuit that life is fundamentally not a problem. And you see how that triggers a beautiful expression of love and compassion and engagement in the world? Because when when we have some intuition that uh, life isn't a problem, what do we want to do? We don't want to retreat from life. We want to really show up and respond and do what we can, because what else are we going to do? We don't feel burdened by life. So why not give ourselves to the moment, to what needs being done in the moment, right? So when you talk about, when we talk about saints, there are people who understand the third noble truth, the experience of sensation enough that they've generalized that. And in generalizing this understanding that it's all okay, they feel so enlivened that they are able to give themselves to life in a way that they stand out. So we call them saints. And then their lives get more complicated, actually, right? Because people are adoring them and, you know, surrounding them. And then that really tests how much, how free they are. Because now their life is more complicated. I mean, you can imagine someone like Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama or any of these people, how complicated their life must be. Or was, in the case of Mother Teresa. And so you really get a sense, oh well, boy, not only, you know, when living alone, are they able to sort of be free, but having a really busy, complicated life, they seem to be happy. Now, I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, but that's really the the test, is can you come into the world and maintain your equanimity and your joy and your capacity to respond in really beautiful ways? And just uh, briefly, and then I'll open it up for conversation, the last double truth, the fourth double truth is disintegration. So we get steady with dukkha, with stress in life, until we begin to see that when there's attachment, stress is a problem, no attachment, no problem. That allows for a deepening realization of the experience of no stress and that generalization where we really understand that life fundamentally isn't a problem. And then that leads to disintegration, like understanding how to live. Like, if we want to be free, we practice being free. Free of self-centered concerns in all of our relationships, in all ways, basically. And that's the Eightfold Path. 
which we don't have time to go into tonight. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. Any questions that you have, but also any experiences you have in your practice you'd like to share with the group? What have you been learning? What comes to mind? Robert, and then Will. So clearly about skill and unskillful. Isn't it a pro- isn't it a process for evolution for us from childhood to adulthood to uh, experience just like the hot stove to experience unskilled before we experience skill? It's not automatic. Right. Well, certainly it gets our attention more, you know, the unskillful actions, because uh, by definition, when we use that word here, unskillful, we mean actions, activities of the mind that directly lead to stress for us and maybe others. So that gets our attention, you know, when we're acting in that way and then life gives feedback, it wakes us up. The Buddha said that, you know, that stress, that suffering, either leads us to go into cycles of denial, blaming, you know, unproductive reactions to stress, or it wakes us up and we get interested, you know, how might I relate to this stress in a skillful way? Who might know something that can help me? Yeah, I think that's right, though. Not everybody, but most people uh, get interested in spiritual life and these teachings in particular, because they've ha- they have a more honest relationship with stress. They see it, they're bumping up against it, they're wondering what they can do about it. Not everybody, but I think the majority seem that seems to be their way in. Well, did you have a thought? Yeah, I was just going to share that, like, lately in particular, I found that, like, the three refuges have been really helpful, and particularly the way that I heard them framed here, which was like taking refuge in awareness, and then the Dhamma, which is just nature coming and going, and then kind of awareness knowing that things are coming and going, uh, expresses Sangha, which is like beautiful qualities, and like that's been really helpful, so like particularly lately in this week, like there's a lot of things that are transitioning in my life, like living situation and uh, jobs and whatnot, like, really stressed out about it, really anxious about it, but just, like, sitting and, like, knowing that there's stress and anxiety and knowing that that's just kind of the way that my body and mind kind of work is thinking about stuff too much and then getting worked up about it. And so, like, once I was not taking that personally, then it was, like, really easy to kind of engage with all this stuff. Like, before I was feeling really overwhelmed, and then I just sat with it and was feeling, like, a lot of tension and a lot of stress and just feeling it, but kind of taking refuge in it as just being coming and going of nature and not taking it personally. And then once I kind of sat with that for a while, then I felt very free to kind of engage with it and start actually doing something about it, whereas before I just felt too overwhelmed to even do anything. So Yeah, thanks. That was very Thanks for sharing that, Will. That's really important. And one of the things you get from Will's comments about working with the three refuges as an actual practice, refuge in awareness, he said, if you didn't hear him, refuge in Dhamma being like that everything right here and now is coming and going, 
And then refuge in that beautiful qualities will arise, skillful responses to my life will arise if there's awareness, knowing things as they are, knowing that things are coming and going. And the, the, the great thing about what Will said is we're learning to take refuge in what's already here and now. And it's really good because we tend, out of habit, the way we're conditioned in our culture, we take refuge in what we don't have. You know, if this, then I'll be safe. But we really want to flip that. If something's actually going to be a refuge for us, it has to be here and now. Otherwise, what kind of refuge is it? You know, if it isn't something that can be uncovered, opened up right here, can't really take care of us. Other thoughts? Time for one or two more? What comes to mind or questions? going back to what Will said, that Dhamma, the way we use Dhamma as something that's here and now. So Buddha represents the awareness, that sort of empty space of the mind that knows. And then Dhamma is stuff that comes and goes in that empty space, like everything. That's Everything is Dhamma. But like Sunita's point is that we can have a teaching that encourages us to view Dhamma, everything that's coming and going, as very ephemeral and insubstantial, like that image she used. And there are many images, you know, like a cloud in the sky, or she used that tissue paper that floats, it seems substantial, and then it burns up, and there's basically nothing there. But one way or another, through connecting deeper and deeper with the way it is, we see this truth, that there isn't actually anything worth grasping anyway. Things just have the appearance of being substantial because we take them personally. Pain seems substantial and personal, not because it is, but because we take it personally. It's the taking pain personally that makes it substantial. It's like death is substantial because we take it personally. Now, I know it's easy to take death personally. But I also know that it's possible not to take death personally. And then, I tell you, it is not a problem. But as soon as the mind takes it personally, it's a problem. And this is true with all the little and all the big things in life. Any last comment before we end the evening that comes to mind? Yeah, Julie. Last week I went to the home for family. And I got tripped up by some statements that were said 
reunion, and it caused me a lot of pain because I took it personally. Um, I came to you, and you said, "Where's the the bigger heart that can hold this?" So it was my refuge, and it, and it got me beyond that that yeah. place of pain. And then I was able to talk to my daughter about it and figured out I had totally misperceived the statement. So it was pain that was self-inflicted and wasn't necessary. So it was was a big learning for me. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. The people here, Julie? Yeah, so then let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. And to appreciate these teachings and all of the women and men who have practiced before us, grateful that in their busy lives, their complicated, difficult lives, they realize wisdom and compassion and was able, were able to share it. And now it's our turn to do our best, cultivating this wisdom, letting it open the heart, responding with compassion here in the world, being a cause for peace in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.